at our house on, I think it was Friday, there was a, a pretty sudden and pretty long uh, section of hail that came through. Um, and I can probably maybe count one or two times where I've seen hail in real life. And Jackie was like, I'm not sure if, if I've ever really gotten to experience this. And a little pea-sized pea -size hail. But some of you may have never seen it before. Some of you may not have seen it on Friday. It might not have come through your area. But nonetheless, hail is not a frequent sort of thing. And so I've known about hail since I was young, since we read about how water stays up in the air and it finally falls out of the sky in the form of these frozen pods or these, these, these balls. So there's, there's something of knowing. I know what hail is. I know how it comes about, but I've never seen it with my eyes before. I've never known it, experienced it, felt it in my hands. Uh, Eleanor found out how cold it was. Um, but nonetheless, there's a, there's a vast difference between I know about hail or I know about hail. I've, I've, I've known it firsthand. I have firsthand experience with it. And that, that is something of what we'll talk about this morning because Paul, Paul is set on knowing Christ. And we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. But he wants to truly know Christ. And there are some things that are potential barriers to him knowing Christ. There are things that, that by themselves enable him to know Christ in a true way. So the main point for us this morning is in order to know Christ truly, so the difference between knowing Christ and knowing Christ, in order to know Christ truly, we must trust him truly and join in imitating him truly. Knowing him truly is in some ways dependent on those two things. But here's the issue. The issue is that there is in us an irresistible urge to prove ourselves before God and we're so quick to refuse his free gift that has come to me, believe. We feel like we have to present ourselves to him in a certain way and that's what Paul says is, stands directly in his path to knowing Christ truly. And have you noticed that in yourself? There's this irresistible urge. I must prove myself to him. I must get something right. And no matter where we turn, we might be suspicious of that free gift, just like the Judaizers were who said the Philippians needed to be circumcised and follow the law in order to be saved. There's that, that intense desire to contribute something. So rather than giving you all these points, the first is self-righteousness, which is the chief barrier to truly knowing Jesus. Backing up to what Steve covered last week, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and do what? What do we do? Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he gives his grand list, his resume, his pedigree. But what does he finish it with? But whatever gain I had, the gain of these things, I counted, I, I at one time, purposefully counted those as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything that seems like it would be an advantage to me. I count all of those things as loss. And we have to understand where the Philippians are to know why is Paul sharing this with them. We've we talked about the strife that they're experiencing within their church, but also the persecution that they're experiencing from outside the church. He's, he's saying, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Imitate the, the humility of Jesus, but also stand firm, be bold, strive side by side with one another. One of those threats that is coming to them is a small but, but destructive addition to the gospel. But you have to be circumcised. You have to, you have to keep some piece of the law. And Paul, Paul is confronting that with his own, his own take, his own two cents on what these people are saying. Don't forget, though, that Paul is still in prison. He's still writing from afar. He's not with them. And it kind of informs the, the joy that comes from what he's about to share with us. Now, he, used, he uses that phrase, confidence in the flesh, several times. And to me, it's, it's a picture of him standing there with a fairly long sheet of paper that has his resume. All of the things that he has done exceptionally well, that he could take pride in, the things that do according to the law please God, the things that would put him in the best position to be, to, to get the, the, the long sought after thumbs up from God Paul has on this list. And yet, before the Philippians and before these people who are trying to add something to the gospel, he takes it and he crumples it up and he throws it in the trash. He says, I put no confidence in the flesh, nothing that I have done that would put me in a, a, even a mildly good position before God. I put no confidence there because he realized that his record was good for nothing. He had all the credentials and they didn't measure up. And so we have to ask, when did things change for Paul? When did things change for him personally? When did he stop counting on that pedigree and resume to keep him in the black, so to speak? It was as soon as the risen Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he changed from a Jewish lawkeeper to a believer in Jesus, who are two different people, in a sense. He believed in Jesus, the one who kept the law the way that even righteous Paul couldn't keep it. In the past, God's standard has been obeying the law that he has commanded as the only way to be in this peaceful relationship with him. So, so sacrificing in order to maintain purity before a pure and holy God who is in the Israelites' midst. We were looking this morning in youth Bible study, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the, what the Israelites recited over and over again, and, and yet it's leaving us how is that even possible? But where does that leave us? I'm not, I'm not aware of anyone in the room who is actively striving to keep Moses' law. But lest we think it's unimportant, we can't forget that even as 21st century Christians, the law of God himself was put in place 
as the requirement. It is still, it still stands as the requirement. The law must be kept. It must be kept. It must be kept by someone if there's any hope to be spared from God's just judgment against our sin. It is not arbitrary in God's eyes. He does not change the standard. And that's what led some of these Jews, these people who had the gospel twisted in Philippi, to believe that you must still fulfill certain pieces to be a believer in Jesus. They're saying it's, it's still so important, isn't it? You have, to, you have to at least, maybe the, maybe the biggest thing, maybe circumcision, one of the most key kind of uh, institutions underneath and kept in that law. It was started with Abraham, preserved in the law of Moses. But for the, but the, these, these Jews know that that standard hasn't disappeared, but their response is to get busy obeying so that they can be right in God's eyes. For the Gentile Philippians, you have to remember the Philippians are, are not those who have grown up under the law. They, they, they have not been those who are familiar with this law. And Paul isn't coming to them and saying, ah, forget, forget those crazy Jews. I used to be one of them, but I left that crowd because the law is just burdensome and useless. No, Paul Paul in no way is backing off of the, the necessity of the law being kept, fulfilling the demands of loving God with our whole hearts and atoning for sin with the blood of animals, but it's impossible. And yet the fate of those under the law was all the same, he says in Galatians 3, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. James says that if if you become at fault of one area of the law, you are at fault for all of it. So if if you're following me here, God requires the law to be kept. But if you try to do that, you're setting yourself up for failure for never actually being able to do it. The law must be kept, but if I try to... Paul's saying, I'm cursed. That sounds merciless. Pigeonholing and leaving us without any option. Or is it? Paul doesn't think so. He's he's ready to abandon his ability to keep the law or how successfully he's done so thus far for one shining and particular reason. Because he sees his resume of self-righteousness as a barrier to something better, a roadblock, jersey walls standing in his way. And what it's standing in the way of is knowing Jesus, like knowing Jesus. Why does he see it that way? Why does he see his, his efforts as a barrier to something better? Well, most, most people are trying to stick to a standard that will make their life amount to something in God's eyes, even if they don't believe God exists. Here's an example. Many people, if you ask them, will agree with this statement, I am a good person. What is that saying? Except that my goodness is good enough, or I am good enough to keep me safe. 
or I am, I am in a place where um, no real fault could be found with me. So that's where all of us exist kind of in this, in this idea of, okay, I'm okay. I'm not doing anything crazy. I'm all right. Even the people who are doing the worst might still be able to convince themselves, I'm, I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm okay. There's nothing that can kind of pin me down. And so for those who don't believe in Christ, that, that is the barrier between them and Christ. It's a, a letting the realization in that I am completely at fault before God. But it's not just unbelievers because believers must be on alert too. The version for us is I am a good Christian. You might very well be a faithful, godly Christian, but insofar as you are relying on that to do you some good, any good, before God, you are not availing yourself fully and truly to knowing Jesus because in that moment or in those moments or in that life, his righteousness does not mean to you what it's meant to mean. And if, if you don't feel convinced of that yet, you can read a, a longer quote, but it's, it's to show what is true for every man and woman on this planet is that we will be presented before God at the judgment. We will have to give account for what we've done in this life. And sometimes that picture can look very different depending on who you ask. And so I was helped by the picture that John Calvin gives. How shall we reply to the heavenly judge when he calls us to account, when we go to our grave saying, I am a good person, or even I'm a decent Christian? Let us imagine for ourselves that judge, not as our minds naturally imagine him, but as he is depicted in scripture, by whose brightness the stars are darkened, by whose strength the mountains are melted, by whose wrath the earth is shaken, whose wisdom catches the wise in their craftiness, besides whose purity all things are defiled, whose righteousness not even the angels can bear, who makes not the guilty man innocent, whose vengeance when once kindled penetrates to the depths of hell. Those are mostly from Job. Let us behold him, I say, sitting in judgment to examine the deeds of men, our deeds included. Who will stand confident before his throne? Who can dwell with the devouring fire, asks the prophet. Who can dwell with everlasting burnings? Well, Scripture does give us the answer. He who walks righteously and speaks the truth. But let such a one, whoever he is, come forward. Nay, that response causes no one to come forward. For on the contrary, a terrible voice resounds, if thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, Lord, who can stand? Who can stand before that sort of judge who creation quakes underneath and whose holiness is burning? You know this familiar verse from Isaiah 64. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, the best of the best, Paul's resume, our resume, is like a polluted garment. 
That is what Paul is faced with. Even you can, you can read in Romans 7 and 8 the predicament that he feels. And it causes him not to despair, not to try to ignore, okay, maybe, he's, maybe he's not going to deal with me that way at the end. Maybe, maybe he'll grade on the curve. Maybe he'll give me a couple extra bonus points. Instead, he's been shown on the road to Damascus to whom he must run. He says, but whatever gain I had, that whole body of work, that, that masterpiece of a life, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, so there's, there's I counted, once upon a time, I counted in that, in that day, but also right now, currently and ongoingly, I count Everything that would seem to me an advantage in the eyes of God, I count as loss. This is where I would want to address anyone who, who and this is, feels like a, a, a page from my own playbook, um, for the one who thinks that they're never wrong, not, not in terms of facts and knowledge, but in terms of guilt and sin. Look at Paul's example. He had it all. He was better than any of us. So lay down your righteousness. In other words, be willing to not be right in your own eyes. Because it has prevented you from truly turning to and truly knowing Jesus in a better way. Whatever score you're keeping for yourself, such that, such that you're appalled at the sin of others and hardly nicked by your own must be thrown away like Paul did. Crumple it up, throw it in the trash. Or, or if you feel so disappointed by your weakness and failure that you can't believe that someone as faithful as you could possibly do such a thing, your righteousness stands in the way of you knowing the vast mercy of Christ. Those might only be hints and tips of the iceberg that you're clinging too closely to your righteousness and not that of Christ, that you've refused to count those things as loss and filthy before Christ and to make your bed in his perfect life lived for you to the pleasure and the glory of God the Father. This is ongoing. It's not just a part of believing in Christ for the first time. It's hitting the refresh on counting all those things as loss again and again. Counting those things or my view of myself as good, counting them as valuable as the trash in the garbage or the filth in the toilet. Like Paul says in the following verse, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now rubbish is, is a, a dirty word. It is a intensely valueless and worthless and appalling kind of word. And that's, that's what Paul is saying. That I, I gave this list to you not to impress you. I gave this list to you to show you none of this counts. None of it does any good for me. And the truth is we may know the Jesus of this Bible, but we don't know him truly and sincerely if we know him while we're still attempting to stand on our own two feet. The reason why I say that is because Paul is choosing to lose his rightness for that single purpose, that I may know him. So 
take that and flip that. He's saying, I won't know him if I do not count all of these things as loss. So he sees that position of heart, that constant inclination to stay right before God as a barrier to actually and deeply knowing Jesus, which is instructive for us. Because many of us would happily say we know him, still thinking that we aren't in total desperate need of someone else's resume, someone else's rightness besides our own. So... We're left to either believe the perfect law keeper and his righteousness or to face the judge alone. That's where the second piece of this passage comes to full form. The second point is faith truly depending on the righteousness that is from God. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. So there's, there's only one thing that Paul is saying is worth Losing all of that. What I've worked my whole life for and what the Jews think is essential to following Jesus, which is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And there's just so much repetition in this passage that I think it's worth noting. He says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, I've given up all this. Because of that, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, and that I may know him. It is abundantly clear of what Paul wants, what his deepest desire is. His desire is to know and experience that there is surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's the only thing that will change your view of your righteousness. Is there to you surpassing worth in knowing Jesus above all else? Surpassing worth over money, over accomplishment, even over good things, even over uh, uh, manifestations of the Spirit. So those are only good insofar as they are contributing to me understanding the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That's what they're there for, ultimately. And my prayer this morning has been that for this church family, there will be a distinct uh, note that there is surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus. I distinctly remember a few, I think it's been over, over a year now, uh, when we were doing prayer meetings um, on Wednesdays, uh, there was an opportunity to j- just draw things on the chalkboard back in the prayer room, and the Lord brought this verse to mind, and It's like, show me, show me that there is surpassing worth in knowing Jesus because I'm not at this moment convinced and I need your help being convinced that he is worth, not just that he in and of himself is worth more, but that me experiencing him and knowing him is worth more than than anything, more than even my my personal safety, my well-being, my my comfort, my, my own desires. 
In order to see the surpassing worth, we've seen the picture of that judge, but I wanted to take us to Romans 3. We're not going to have it on the screen because it's a decently long chunk, but if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Romans 3. We're going to walk through it a little bit because Paul's, Paul's very straightforward with how this plays out in our lives as far as the value of Jesus, especially regarding his righteousness. I'm not going to spend too much time explaining, but but I think reading itself will, will be clear to us. Start in verse 9, Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? So, so Jews have no advantage when it comes to rightness before God. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So this is, this is the bad news. This is the state of things. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even a single person. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, which we talked about just a little bit. For by works of that law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It cannot accomplish what the Jews were hoping for it to accomplish. So what are we left to do? We're pigeonholed. We're stuck. I can't. We can't fulfill the law, or we're called to fulfill the law, but I can't, and if I try, I'm cursed for it. So, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from that law. Although the law and the prophets both bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for who? All who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his patience with us, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of Paul's resume? It is excluded, which is why Paul is so willing to give it up. How is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, it is excluded by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And this last line is important. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The law is still valuable, but it is only valuable to us in so much as Christ has fulfilled it for us. 
And that is where the brightness of Christ starts to show. We realize the predicament that we're in and how Jesus is the only solution. So, but back to, back to Philippians 3, I, I want to ask, because it caught my attention this week, who is this righteousness from? From God, the just judge, supplied through his perfect son Jesus for sinners like you and me, for whoever would believe that their best is like filthy rags and that only Jesus' righteousness satisfied God's wrath against them. Faith is receiving this gift, realizing that there's nothing that you could possibly add. It is complete. It is full. A righteousness that depends on faith. I must believe in order to get in on that righteousness. I must take Jesus at his word, believe that he is the king of all kings, that he died and that he also rose from the dead. Things that to us at face value seem so unbelievable. Faith is truly and continually depending on the righteousness of Christ. You will not, you will not do that, as we'll get to in a moment. You, you will not do that unless you are convinced that you are safe to be wrong before God because you have a perfect righteous substitute. Calvin again said this, we compare faith to a kind of vessel for unless we come empty and with the mouth of our soul open to seek Christ's grace like a, like a baby bird gaping, we are not capable of receiving Christ unless we come open, unless we come saying, I've, I've got nothing to offer you except that which contributed to Christ's death, my sin. I love, love the, the verse of a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be what? It would be losing. It would be purposeless. We're not the right man on our side, the man of who's choosing? God's choosing. This, this is from God. Thus ask who that may be, Christ Jesus. It is he. The man of God's own choosing has been put on the side of everyone who would believe. Everyone who would say and go on saying, my best is filthy, my righteousness is garbage before you, so I cling to you, I believe upon you, I rest in the perfect righteousness and goodness of Christ. Galatians 5 says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Freedom from what? Freedom from that burden of the law. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again, again to the yoke of slavery. For us, that's not just, hey, 21st century Christian, don't go back and, and try to keep the law. It's also, don't submit to that yoke of slavery that says, do you have to get yourself right? That is Christ's righteousness job. The entire book of Galatians is about that very thing. So, I want to speak to those who, who might feel battered or condemned. If you feel like every, every wrong done is 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 crushing before the Father, and you don't, see, you don't see a way out. This is what real freedom looks like, to be able to come knowing that he wants you to come again and again and again, and there is no exhausting that perfect righteousness. It is ever, ever for you to come protected, free to confess. That, that's the reason why we do not bring those things before God and before others 
It's because we feel like we'll be met with, um, with condemnation. And yet if we know that that's an option, that Jesus frees us to come to him with our worst, not our best anymore, we're not trying to bring him our best, I'm bringing my worst to you because I know if I do that, you will meet me with mercy because there's not a point where God the Father is displeased with the sacrifice that his son made for us. That's how Jesus can come interceding for us all the time. And a caution for us as a church by way of application is that we want to be a church that in, there's no shred of an addition to the requirements to repent and believe. You don't have to fix yourself up first. Stop doing that and then, and then you'll be a part of this. We don't want to include any ounce of that because that was never included for us. It was repent, believe, and receive. This is just gift upon gift, the gift of faith, the gift of forgiveness in Christ's blood, redemption. We, we want to be careful. Watch, watch ourselves. Watch how we talk. Watch how we talk about people that are outside the church or just categories of people. Uh, is there any sense of like, all they need to do is do what I've done and, and believe the good news of the gospel. That's all they need. That's all that's required. Moving on to, to the third point, truly knowing Jesus in power and suffering is a little bit different than the others, but, but there's a sense in which Paul shows us what truly knowing Jesus is like. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul wants to know him, but he also wants to know him through the power of his resurrection. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, I think I want that, but what is it? He wants a real experience of Christ's risen power. And we want to experience our Lord in that way, but, but will we be able to notice it? Is, it? is it spiritual gifts and the manifestations of the Spirit? Is it, is it just the future power of being raised from the dead one day? Or do we have to wait for that moment to experience some level of the power of Christ's resurrection. I think Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 helps us understand that a little bit more. So again, he's, saying, he's praying and he's saying that you may know, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's things like like healing. It's things like spiritual gifts, that resurrection power, but it's also power over sin in our lives and power that's on display as he upholds us under the worst this life has to offer. But most importantly, the power of his resurrection is most clearly seen in the willingness and readiness to suffer in the name of Christ, to share in his sufferings which, which is part and parcel to knowing him, requires power. In Paul's eyes, he wants, he wants to stay on Jesus' heels, the Jesus in Philippians 2 who suffered and died for others. He's not willing to take Jesus and skip the humiliation that might be involved in following him. You know, you know his other lists, the hardships, the sleepless nights, the scorn. Paul is saying if that's involved... And knowing Jesus, 
I want to experience his resurrection power that will enable me to withstand that kind of suffering. If that, if I need, if I, if that's part and parcel to me knowing Jesus, I want to experience his power in that suffering. And also, I want to know Jesus in that place because no one will be willing to suffer for Jesus' sake unless they know that he was raised in power and will also raise them in power. So do you think do you think that Paul's faith was excited by knowing that the firstborn from the dead, Jesus, has already been raised and was seated at the right hand of the Father, ready to raise Paul up too one day? I think we'll get more into that next week, but that that is a the primary motivator for Paul. I've I know, I've seen the risen Christ. I know that he lives. So I'm certain that he will raise me up too. So I'm free to follow Jesus and know him in suffering for him. And that's how how we should approach the real possibility of enduring difficult things for the sake of Christ. Have you been trying your hardest to maintain integrity in a situation and it flies in your face? Have you generously served someone with money or time only to have them disappear from your life or for them to go on demanding and attempting to take advantage of you? Have you taken great risks for the sake of someone knowing Christ or growing in Christ that have not turned out the way that you hoped or just left you recuperating? I'm trying to follow you, Lord. I'm trying to do that, trying to do what you've called me to do and and be, and I feel like nothing but pain has come of it. Friends, it's in those very moments where in faith you are sharing in Jesus' sufferings, becoming like him, in his humiliating others-interested death. And friends, that is where you will know Jesus more truly than anyone who refuses to follow him into that suffering. John Piper said this, that's where, that's where we get to know Jesus most deeply. When we are willing to take on ourselves whatever hardships are required for obedience and for service, that's where we taste most deeply this surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So do you find yourself unwilling to suffer for Christ's sake? Just a, there's a block in you that says, I, I'm not gonna go that far. Even in small ways, as you hold out the truth of Christ to people you know who are hardened, maybe you insulate yourselves from those sorts of things. I often find myself there. I wanna avoid all that mess, all that shame, all that rejection. Perhaps we don't know Christ in the same experiential way that we should long for. Perhaps we have not fully known or seen with the eyes of faith the true surpassing worth of knowing Jesus that completely trumps those moments of suffering. Let's ask the Spirit to help us believe what Paul has already said in chapter 1, verse 29, that suffering for Christ has been granted to us as a gift. We don't go looking for being thrown in prison for the sake of the gospel, but if it comes, I want to know the resurrection power of Jesus that can sustain me. That's where we get to know Jesus most deeply, where we're willing to take on those things. More, more on that next week and on this as well, suffering and becoming like Jesus in his humble death is, is motivated by the promise of our resurrection, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul says. So do you want to know Jesus truly, whether you haven't known him before or you have known him but not in a deeply reliant way? The call is as old as this book that we read every Sunday. Believe, 
Believe in Jesus. It's not, uh, don't hear me saying, hey, hurry up and, and get rid of your righteousness. It's not like something that you can just offload. Believe that Christ's righteousness would be shining pure and beautiful and valuable to you to say, I don't have to be right before God to come to him. He receives me on the merits of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you realize for the first time that your only hope is to count on Jesus' perfect righteousness instead of your dilapidated, totally inadequate righteousness, then believe in Jesus. Trust him and his perfect record in your place that leads to new life, eternal life. But if you already have believed in Jesus, let your faith be stirred this morning. Throw away and believe that that, that clinging to righteousness, can, you can be rid of that. Don't hold on to it as a token offer to God. Look what I did, look what I did. But instead, every day from here after, come to God's throne of grace and find mercy, saying, look what he did. Look what he did. Lord, I was wrong, and rather than defend myself, now I feel free to be wrong before you and to call my sin what it is because you were righteous for me and you have claimed me as your own. I want to walk in obedience. We want to know the surpassing worth of Jesus like that. We want to know that I cannot do without him. I cannot do with what he's off- without what he's offering me. So that, that is my prayer for us this morning is that the worth of Christ would continue to grow, that it would grow exponentially to us individually and as a church as well.